Welcome to another edition of The Art of Living Proactively. My guest this week is Dr. Michael Turner, a graduate of Stanford, Harvard and the Mayo Clinic. And he's been practicing integrative medicine for the past four or five years. And we discuss his journey into health and medicine, um, what got him interested in that in the first place. And he realized he wanted to go into a real sort of patient-centered medical field. So we, we discuss around that what is integrative medicine, what is pain avoidance and and the cycle around that. He talks about taking steps to improve your health through strengthening medication when needed and mental readiness. And he also shares thoughts on how medicine may change with AI, robotics and so on. So that's all coming up this week's episode with Dr. Michael Turner. If you do like this episode, please do share it with someone who you feel will really uh, get some good value from it. And why not subscribe, leave us a review, that would be really appreciated. Welcome to another edition of The Art of Living Proactively. My guest today, Dr. Michael Turner. How are you, Michael? Thank you, Tony. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure. You're here for the second time. And we had a little, well, I had a bit of a technical issue. For some reason, the recording didn't store on the high drive. Who knows how, you know, technology can be very strange sometimes. But I'm very grateful that you're back again and it's great to see you for the second time. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm glad to make it work. You know, uh, second time is a charm, and I think we're going to be back and better than ever. So <laughs> let's see what happens. So I mean, how to start off? I mean, you're you're a graduate of Stanford, Harvard, and the Mayo Clinic. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty impressive CV, then. Well, thank you. You know, I I never felt pressure as I was growing up. I never felt like I had to do any of that. I just had a desire to do my best. And I had a strong inculcation of that on the part of my mom. You know, she said, you just need to do your best. If your best is getting, you know, a, a passing grade in this very difficult class, that's fine. But if you're doing less than your best, I'm not accepting that, you know, as your parent, I can't be proud of that. So I had to drive around excellence and, and doing my best, working hard, being all that I could be. And interestingly enough, now that you mentioned Tony, makes me recall, I remember I played baseball growing up and one of the years I was playing baseball as a youth, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. I remember a comment the coach made towards the end of the season. He kind of looked at me a little sideways. He's like, you have a lot of potential. You could be really good if you just work harder. You know? And that, that just sat with me and it just nagged me. It felt like a weight in my stomach. Like, oh no. Oh no, I refuse to be that person, right? Like I could have been something if I just worked harder. Oh no, he thinks I could be something, but I'm not because I'm not putting out. Oh no, I refuse to be that person, you know? So I, I think in retrospect, you know, these events shape you as you grow up. And that was a powerful uh, time and quote that sort of shook me into really trying to be all that I can be starting around age 11, 12, something like that. Yeah. Was that 11 when he said that? Yeah, yeah. Youth, wow. youth Little League, baseball. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so how, how old were you, when did you first start thinking about health and that could be like a, a career for you? When, when did that first come about? Interesting. I would say that first came about uh, when I was about 15 mm -hmm. in uh, here in the U.S., what we would call high school, my second year of high school. So we had a required health class that we took in which we learned about different body systems, you know, the heart, the eyes, the musculoskeletal system. And that was really eye-opening for me. Uh, it was very revelatory, very inspiring. It was as if you took the hood of the car and you lifted it up and now you're looking at all the parts of the engine, right? And before you've just been an oblivious driver going from point A to point B. 
and now I'm, I'm learning about the insides and, and feeling really fascinated and quite frankly, blessed, you know, uh, like we were given a great gift. We were given a great gift in our, in our three-dimensional body. I use the example of the heart because that's particularly striking for me. You know, the heart is the first fully functional organ that comes together as the baby is developing. And it's, you have a rudimentary heart at 28 days. <clears throat> and if you think about it, that heart's there, it's beating faithfully, right? And it's, it's the definition of life. If your heart ceases to beat for even a moment, you're on the floor, you're done, you yeah. know? And it's been faithfully serving you since day 28 of your life. Love dub, love dub in the background all day, 24 seven. And you don't have to think about it, right? It's not as if when you fall asleep, you have to worry. Oh my gosh, is my heart going to continue to beat? You know, I got to keep one eye open, make sure my heart's going because I could die at any moment if it's not. No, it's your faithful partner. It's just in the background, just doing this all day, every day, you know, keeping you going and allowing, enabling every other act in your body, in your human experience, yeah. right? And, and it's complicated, you know, it's got electrical discharge and patterns flowing back and forth. It's, it's like its own self-generated battery. It has its own self-generated electrical discharge system. And it actually has four different chambers that all have to be in unison. It's not just one pump, it's four. And there's a synchrony there. And if that synchrony goes wrong for even a moment, you have cardiac arrest, right? So, so then that just raises the question, well, we've been given such an amazing servant such a faithful and loyal and true life-sustaining piece of tissue and organ here uh are we doing anything to take care of it right are we abusing it are we strengthening it you know mm -hmm. so so similar thoughts started to creep up and i sort of had this sense of appreciation for my body essentially it really kicked in that moment so when you when you left high school and you started studying that further education so when did you start to really kind of decide on a niche that you wanted to kind of go deeper in? Yeah. Well, it was a combination. It was a confluence of a few different factors. Um, on the one hand, I knew I wanted to do something that was interpersonal, very patient-centered, uh, human to human. I could never have been, for example, a pathologist who sits and looks at cells in a microscope, right? Nor even, frankly, a surgeon who spends a long time in the operating room with patients under anesthesia. I knew I needed to be talking to people, you know, putting my hands on them, hugging them, crying with them, you know, interacting, mixing it up. So I had to be direct patient involvement. I knew that. Um, and what, why, why was that? I guess just the feel emotional satisfaction of it. You know, I, I didn't feel satisfied to be under a microscope looking at a slide. I felt satisfied to put a smile on someone's face or to bring a sense of relief because we finally figured out what was wrong with them. You know, I guess the emotional feedback was, was much more potent Okay, uh, for me. Yeah. And everyone has their niche by no means of my denigrating, you know, surgeons or pathologists that, you know, you have to know yourself, right. And I'm no better intrinsically in my niche than anybody else's, but it is, I do know myself and I know that that's what gets my motor going in the morning. I knew that was going to be necessary. So I knew it had to be a direct patient care. Um, I knew it had to be something to do with musculoskeletal system and sports medicine, orthopedics, that whole genre. I knew I was interested in that for personal reasons. I started exercising and I always played sport growing up. We talked about that a little bit. And <clears throat> so I wanted to bring those two worlds together. And then finally, 
I brought together the world of just holistic medicine or integrative medicine, you might say, right? So that is thinking broadly about how to help people beyond traditional Western education of a medication or a surgery. Again, they have their role, but they're limited. You know, it's, it's like, let's take our eye out of the telescope and back up for a second and look at a broader field of view. And so I always looked at it as my job is to bring the most efficacious, most value added, most pragmatic, actionable plan to the patient. And it doesn't matter if it means you need to go get a colonoscopy to make sure you don't have colon cancer because I have some concern, or you need to start making smoothies every day and putting some, you know, baby spinach and blueberries in there. And it could be you've had a heart attack and you absolutely need to be on an aspirin to thin your blood and prevent future heart attacks. Or it could be you need to start doing intermittent fasting to, you know, create better insulin sensitivity and lower your blood sugar. In my mind, there was never any distinction. So I just started to pull together uh, a lot of what I was doing personally from areas of health and wellness and supplements and lifestyle and exercise and things like that. How long have you been doing integrative medicine? Yeah, I've been doing integrative medicine solidly now for about five, four or five years. So when I first started in my career, after I finished at the Mayo Clinic, I was recruited to work in a neuroscience center in my local town in the hospital. Uh, and so I did neuroscience rehabilitation. So this was non-surgical. It was focused around people with neurologic problems, helping them, you know, get back on their feet, rehab, move forward, quality of life, et cetera. And there was some pain management involved and there was, of course, orthopedic and neurologic concerns and such. Uh, but th there wasn't anything exactly holistic or integrative per se in the job description. I started to bring that in though. I would have discussions with patients and they would ask me questions, right? So I had an increasing sense of dis-ease with the job and just that I outgrew the job description at some point. I said, I need to go in business for myself. So like 2020, January 2020 actually is when I uh, launched MichaelTurnerMD.com, went into business for myself. And now I'm bringing that full integrated medicine perspective to bear. One of the reasons I asked how long is because I'm wondering how much of a change have you seen in people's um, acceptance of integrative and holistic medicine? Because and it's been a sort of a bit of a mind shift over the last few years. It's more, more accepted now. And what would you say? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Uh, and even worldwide, I would say. I've traveled a bit. I've had the privilege to do that. I was in South America a lot over the last a uh, couple years, particularly in Colombia. And, you know, you can walk down the streets in Colombia and find a juice bar. Uh, you can find, you know, essential oils, right? Uh, you can find, you know, CrossFit functional training gyms, right? So there's this sense of naturalistic um, prevention, sort of owning your health, I guess, um, you know, getting off of medications, you know, those are some common streams of thought that are really moving forward, it seems, and all over the world, frankly. Patients, patients like it in the end. They just do. I mean, even my own parents are always asking me, is there anything else I could do besides starting a new medication? You know, what do you think about garlic, you know, extract or this or that, you know, mushrooms, you know, chromium, selenium, zinc, you know, fish oil. I mean, the questions are nonstop uh, <laughs> to try to get healthy short of needing a medication or get off of a medication. I mean, it's constant. My own parents asked me that. And so there's a strong drive towards it. So what, I mean, it's, the title of this podcast is The Art of Living Proactively. What, 
What yeah. does that mean to you, when, that, that title? It provokes some thoughts. I like the title. Um, the Art of Living Proactively. Well, when I think on the proactive side, I think about, first of all, you have to come to an honest assessment of where you're at, right? So let's say mentally, physically, spiritually, all dimensions of health. Where are you really at? I think that's the first step. Um, almost as in, you know, the 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, they always start with, you know, admit that you're powerless and you have a problem, right? So some people who are starting on their journey of living proactively, I would say they have to start off with an honest inventory, some honest introspection of where they're really at and why they're there, right? Because um, you're not going to be able to change effectively. You're not going to be too proactive if you can't identify what your current barriers are and what your current patterns are and how you've arrived at your current state of less than optimal health, for example. So that's there's that. I think Beyond that, there's definitely making a plan. Um, and I would say it needs, there needs to be baby steps, you know, because psychologically you need to be encouraged with a lot of small victories, right? So people on their act, on their path towards proactive health, um, they may think in their mind, I need to lose 30 pounds. Uh, and, you know, I need to drop my blood pressure by 30 points or something like this. Um, but if they start off, trying to bite off more than they can chew, so to speak, with goals that are too grandiose and they're not really focused on their process. If they fail, they're likely to stop. You know, They're going to try to lose weight and if they only lose 20 pounds, they're going to say, I didn't meet my goal and now I feel frustrated and I'm downcast inside, right? So instead of that, I actually encourage people not to pursue fixed goals like that, but actually to work on your process. You know, there's a Japanese word, Kaizen. You may be familiar with it, K-A-I-Z-E-N. That's the idea. We want a Kaizen mind and approach, which means I just work on my process and I just see where that takes me. You know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It's that idea. So I just want you focused on going to bed on time, you know, doing a little bit of exercise tomorrow, you know, have a little bit of less sugar in your, your, your mix of food and let's just see where your weight ends up. And then we're going to build you know, a couple of these building blocks, we're going to start to stack them up and we're going to just keep refining that process and iterating on that. And a year from now, you might have 10 parts of your health and wellness process that you never had. And it's taking you to increasingly greater heights. So that to me, your title calls that to mind too. You have to define a proactive process that's ultimately going to get you where you want to go. I wonder if in the States we've seen I mean, obviously I don't live there. I just, I see from, from afar, so I don't know how it really is, but yeah, I see all the sort of misinformation and disinformation and how the pharmaceutical companies are just that, that everyone seems to be on tablets and they're just selling ridiculous prices for the uh, for, for their tablets and yeah. all that. And yeah. I wonder if it's in some ways harder to be proactive with your health in, in the states. Hmm. Could be. The States is interesting because we have two different parallel streams of thought and emphasis that are both there. You know, there is a very strong naturalistic side uh, and emphasis, you know, the whole, the, the fitness industry, all these new innovations typically come out of the United States, even California to be very specific, you know, so health and wellness, Venice Beach stuff way back and Jack LaLanne and juicing and you know, all these concepts, you know, the, the latest and greatest thing, it's it's usually coming uh, from the States, by and large, there's the thought leadership in that area. Um, and then, you know, you had like the, the naturalistic movement, the hippies and stuff in the 60s and 70s and all of that organic farming and like all of this stuff, right? 
So there's a strong, strong element of that. At the same time, as you have this mass market health concept or ill health concept that's focused around, you know, efficiency, typically, oh, you're working hard, you know, you don't have time to cook, go to McDonald's, right? So we have fast food, we have prepared food, we have frozen foods. And then, you know, we have, you know, proud advertising slogans, like open 24 hours, you know, and I go by some of these fast foods joints. And I was like, that makes me sick to my stomach. Like, what a public disservice. And you don't have shame. You're open 24 hours. So you can serve someone this fatty, terrible hamburger and fries in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, that's disgusting, you know, but that's, uh, that, that sort of thing. So there's this, uh, overarching, I think, drive towards, towards hustling and trying to be somebody and make, make it and efficiency and work and health gets sidelined. And then of course, ill health creeps in and then you're looking for a quick answer because you don't want to modify your underlying structure and patterns. And there we have the medications and, you know, the psychotherapy. It's like, if you just got outside and, you know, got some fresh air every morning and looked at a tree and took some deep breaths and thought about life and had some gratitude, maybe you wouldn't be so stressed and anxious. But instead, you went, walked to your garage, jumped right in your car, sped down the highway at top speed, walked right inside the building and jumped into your work. And then you're looking for, you know, a psychologist at the end of the day to help you deal with your stress. And again, I'm not, you know, putting down people who have legitimate mental health concerns, but we have to look at the root causes of a lot of that. So it's both things are existing uh, to your point. And I think on the convenience side, there's a sense of people wanting an easy answer, not wanting to struggle, you know, maybe as much as in other countries or cultures, just, yeah. just fix my problem quickly rather than, oh, there's value in the struggle and working through it, you know? Yeah. You talked about how important it is having working with patients and being able to, to, to really help people go on the right path or, or whatever is, are you working? I mean, how big is your practice? Is it, do you have like health coaches working with you? Do you have other practitioners working with you? How, how do you work? Uh, so I see patients remotely for the most part. So zoom calls just like this or telephone calls one afternoon a week. I am in clinic. I have several other employees, but I don't have other providers. So I don't have associated health coaches or other providers. I could, I guess, if I really wanted to, I've always just wanted to keep things simple and streamlined and sort of not have to be the boss of a bunch of people. That was never my goal, you know? Um, so yeah, that's how we run it and, uh, it works out really well. And I have a particular emphasis as well towards education and, and trying to inspire people. So the blog posts or the podcasts and such. I really want to move more and more into that realm, you know, organizing a wellness conference or retreat, for example. Yeah. And is that from your teaching days that that comes from? Largely. Yes, absolutely. I enjoy that. And the sense of just scaling up your impact, right? If I see a person for a half an hour and one-on-one, -on -one, that's fine. But if I spent half an hour writing a blog post that I put on Substack and 10,000 people read it, What's the better use of my time, right? So um, there's that sense of just scaling up the message in different ways. What the pain avoidance cycle? I know that's something you talk about. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that pain avoidance cycle. Um, so the typical, as regards their musculoskeletal health or pain, typically would be the context. So someone comes in and says, oh, doc, my back pain is terrible, right? 
It's just terrible. It's achy all the time. Um, maybe they had an MRI. They might have said, the surgeon said, there's nothing to do surgically for your back. So they're just sort of languishing. They might have done physical therapy a little bit, didn't do much, right? And they're going to tell me that their back hurts. And so they don't feel like being too active. So they sit a lot, which means that their back gets weaker and stiffer, which means it hurts more when they try to do anything, which means they sit more which means it gets weaker and stiffer, right? So now we're in this death spiral, I'll call it. We're just looping around. We're going down the drain, right? And uh, this is a so-called pain avoidance cycle. Yeah. We have to spin that in exactly the opposite direction. We have to intervene and go upwards with this thing. And I know from my background and training that back strengthening is always a good idea. There's no, too, there's no such concept as your back is too strong. Right. right. It's an oxymoron. It's like saying the foundation of a house is too strong. You know, there, there's no such thing. So it's always helpful to strengthen your back, whether you just had surgery, whether you're trying to avoid surgery, you know, whatever. So I know that eventually I have to get this person moving again and strengthening. So how do we do that? Um, the first part usually is to deal with that pain, right? So on the side of medications, I will have the person take some more aggressive pain medications up front to at least get them comfortable at, say, for half an hour a day so they can reinitiate their physiotherapy or at least their home exercise regimen, right? Um, and then also I give them a mental talk about so-called safe pain because there's safe pain and there's unsafe pain, right? You're an athlete. You understand. Safe pain is just that soreness you feel when you're done with that workout, you know? Uh, your calves are burning because you've been doing some box jumps or uphill sprints or something like that. That's safe pain unsafe pain, right? Your stomach, you know, feels like it's going to explode in the middle of the night for no good reason or something like that, right? You have sharp pain in your temple uh, or something, right? So we have to try to have that little distinction. And then which psychologically gets them thinking, I know it's going to hurt right now for a minute, but that's all right. That's safe pain. I'm just putting my tissues through a little bit of stress and strain that they haven't been accustomed to, but this is okay because they're going to remodel, they'll get stronger. And I'm actually on my path to getting better. So mentally, they're ready to deal with a little discomfort. We give them some pain medication and then they start their upward spiral now, which is I do more so I get stronger and more flexible. So I hurt less so I can do more and I get stronger and more flexible and I feel good about what's all happening and we spiral them up. So that'd be the example. How Do you have any thoughts on how, well, I guess specifically your practice, but also more generally medicine might change in the next few years with what with AI and all the sort of stuff that's going on there? Yeah, there are a few ways that I can see it changing, not necessarily for the better. Um, but one, one thing I think would be good would be the personalization of medicine. Um, and this gets actually a lot into the human genome project. This gets into the ability now to rapidly assess for different genetic variations through, you know, a, a skin swab or, or something like that. So this Personalized genetic-based medicine is a concept that's already been rolled out, and it'll come more and more to the forefront, and that's a very good thing. For example, a given medication, based on your genetic profile, you may need to avoid that altogether or need a higher or lower dose for it to be effective. Right. But, we, but, right? but we'd be great to know that ahead of time, hmm. right? So that's an example. Or a given genetic mutation means that you're a very high risk for colon cancer. You need to start getting screened earlier than the typical person, right? Or breast cancer, for example. So the idea of 
a patient knowing specific genetic markers and specific ap- their specific applicability to health and wellness and to your point, being proactive is very important. And that's going to just continue. Um, I think there's going to be an emphasis more and more on imaging. You know, as technology progresses, of course, we've had wonderful things like CT scan, MRI, et cetera. There's going to be more emphasis on imaging and machines. That's not always great because if it's not coupled with actually talking to the person and, you know, even a physical examination, you can start to go kind of far afield. For example, if I did an MRI of every person walking down the street, I'm going to start seeing a lot of abnormalities. Let's just say the case of back pain. This is a well-known example. I can take 100 people who have no back pain, Tony. They're not complaining of back. They think their back's great. And I take a picture of an MRI and I start to see all kinds of problems, right? So if those people were subjected to routine screening by their MRI, they're going to think, oh my gosh, I got a problem in my back. I need to go do something. You know, I didn't know I had a problem. I thought I felt great, but the MRI shows an abnormality, right? So- the correlation between what you see on a picture and what actually produces symptoms is not 100% by any means, which always therefore means you need to talk to the patient and think through this. You know, is this an incidental finding? Is it relevant? Right? That's the question. But when there's an over-reliance on technology, that discussion tends not to happen. And the case would be cancer is a good example. You can do PET scans and things that will show up like, you know, possible cancer sites. And then everybody's in a tizzy and worried and getting biopsies and going here and there. And it's really nothing in the end, right? But um, so there's that that just needs you know wisdom. I, I would say associate with it. Um, on the on the other side, to your point, I think about AI and robotics. For example, robotic surgery. There'll be a point where, for routine appendix, you know, there really probably won't even be a physician there. There might be someone to hold your hand and you know put put you under, and then it's almost like you press a button and the robot just starts doing a preformed set of activities. And maybe there's one doctor in a back room overseeing 10 robots at the same time who can press the stop button if something's not looking right, you know. But just like you've seen the assembly lines of how cars get built, the robots know what to do and just grab and move. These things are going to be pre-programmed to make an incision, go around, fish this thing out, cut it, snip it, etc. Um, is that good or bad? I mean, I don't know. That's a debate. <laughs> uh, probably be some efficiency in, you know, there. Um but I think on the negative side, if you think about AI and healthcare, we're in danger of losing the human connection, becoming over-reliant on these technologies. And ultimately, I think that's very uh, alienating. It's a little off-putting, right? But I'm, I'm afraid that the growing newer generations won't realize there's a difference and their expectations will just be shaped, right? They'll think, They'll lose the idea of going to see a human being and having a doctor who actually knows you and cares about you in three-dimensional space that you can reach out and touch. And he's like listening to your heart and doing, you know, very antiquated things like that. Because now I just, you know, ask the AI what's wrong with me. And then I go to some place and get some scan or something. And there's a human element that's going to be missing. And although that human element is imperfect, that human element is also satisfying and necessary, I think, for the soul of the person, right? To truly feel cared about and healthy. If we just submit ourselves to robots and AI, I don't know how cherished, appreciated, understood, valued, you know, sympathized with, et cetera, we're, we're really feeling uh, in the end. And so it's a bit of a more interpersonal world. I'll just use example in the UK. This is more common than the US. My sister lives there. I might've mentioned it. She lives out near Cambridge. But anyway, I remember the first time I went to the UK 
and they're to a little store, you know, to check out, buy some simple groceries. And there was no one to check you out. It's self-checkout, 100%. You grab a thing, you walk over here, you scan it. There's one person here who's a security guard. Just make sure you're not a thief running off of stuff. But pretty much, it's just nothing but you and a bunch of machines, you know, checking out. And it, I, you know, how did I feel about that shopping experience? It, not great. It felt like some new, faceless, soulless world of tech. You know, this is how I buy food. I grab the food over here, and then I scan this other machine and something. You know what I'm saying? Um, in the U.S., that's not as widespread. We still have actual people checking out for the most part, but things like that, I think, are the wave of the future, unfortunately. I wonder if there's certain aspects of health. Like, I mean, maybe I'm being naive. I think there's certain things that AI won't, not so much that it can't replace, but people, it won't be replaced because people do prefer the sort of human science in certain areas. I, I just wonder, yeah. Well, I, I guess it depends on how far you look ahead. And certain mm -hmm. things I think are just, people will always prefer some elements of health dealing with another person rather than a machine. Yeah, I agree. There'll always be that need and that, that, that preference there. I mean, being a healer will never go out of style in one way or the other, as it's defined different words. You could call it health coach. You can call it, you know, psychologist. I mean, there's different avenues of that, but that person you go to to unburden yourself and be encouraged, inspired, and have your problems solved, that will never go away. Um, Tell us more about you. You touched upon your podcast. Tell us more about your podcast. Sure. It's called Mana, uh, M A N N A. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify. My intention there was to provide high quality health and wellness information from an integrated perspective, which is fine and good, but there are still a lot of people doing that, right? Um, but I, what I tried to make unique about it was what I call spiritual encouragement, you know, that side of things, really paying attention to our soul, our spirit, our emotions. So integrative health and wellness combined with a dose of spiritual encouragement is what I called it, you know, uh, that's really what I tried to do. So we have different subjects that we talk about and I rather enjoy it, you know, very much. I get excited about making a podcast episode or for example, I'll put this episode out, you know, when we're done recording and, uh, it's great. How but, long have you been doing it? Oh, uh, not too long. I think our, I'm just getting started in the podcast realm really. So I, maybe six months, something like that, six, eight months. And is it pure, do you do it just more for the enjoyment or is it also, does it help your business in any way? It helps my business to a degree. Um, it's mainly on the side right now of just education, inspiring, you know, putting my name out there and making connections with like-minded people. It's not a big business generating income concept that any, by any means right now, but, um, I like what it is even in its current state. You know, I get feedback. Hey, Dr. Turner, I listened to your episode the other day. This is what I thought or encouraged me. You know, people I didn't know had even listened to it, right? We'll get in touch with you and tell you something about it. So that's a good feeling. Yeah. So come back to the, the integrative medicine, holistic approach that you've got. Do you, yeah. I'm wondering, so the patients that come to you are, is there a common thread in, in as much as certain conditions or other diseases that people have, or is it pretty widespread? There are many common threads, actually. Good point. Actually. 
it, yeah, the, the human experience coalesces around several themes that I end up addressing in integrative health. So one of them would be lack of energy, super common. People just say, I'm just tired. Uh, I feel like I have to drink caffeine to stay awake in the afternoon or have a cup of coffee to get going. You know, I don't have any energy to go to the gym at the end of the day or do projects at home, something like that. Uh, or sometimes people have frankly been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, for example, even. Um, and that is a complicated problem, but it can be solved. You know, it, it gets down to hormone levels many times. It gets down to the quality of people's sleep. It gets down to their diet, their exercise or lack thereof, certain supplements. And all of that, if we start, you know, addressing all of those realms, we can start to turn the energy uh, mm -hmm. prop around for people. So that's that's very common. Um, I would say very common, actually, in, in, since the age of COVID, a little bit more would be questions about people's immune systems. So they'll say something like, I don't want to get COVID or I don't want to, you know, be getting the seasonal flu anymore. You know, how can I strengthen my immune system? Is there anything I can do to prevent this? Uh, and then there are questions of cancer prevention. So people say, I have a family history of XYZ cancer. Um, you know, what do I need to do to screen for that? Or how can I be proactive, right, towards uh, not getting it, which is interesting because your immune system and, and cancer prevention tie in. A lot of people don't quite understand that. Your immune system is not just surveilling your body and detecting fungus, bacteria, et cetera, that don't belong. It's actually surveilling and detecting incipient cancer cell production that doesn't belong as well and destroying it. So I tell patients a strong immune system is an anti-cancer immune system. And so therefore, thankfully, there are steps that can be done to actually boost your immune system. It's not you know, uh, unknown knowledge. There are integrated medicine, things that can be done starting tomorrow that will boost your immune system. So that'd be another one. Another one I think would be uh, mental health. So people might say, do you have any natural approaches to helping my anxiety? Um, I don't want to be on medication or I want to take less of my medication. Um, then sometimes there's just cognitive health and people might say, you know, my parents came down with Alzheimer's. I feel like I'm starting to forget things. I'm starting to slip a little bit mentally. I'm not as sharp at work. It got worse after I had COVID. And, you know, can you help me with that? That'd be some, right? <clears throat> uh, and then there are some more traditional concepts of, you know, weight loss or, you know, fitness performance, you know, I want to have a little more energy for my workouts or gain more strength or something like that. So those would be maybe my top six, seven concerns people come with. Is there a, does that book come to mind? It's really moved you for any reason. Yes, truly. This is the most powerful moving book I have ever read outside of the Bible. And it's called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, Unbroken. It was actually made into a movie. I would encourage people to read the book first. The movie is, is subpar um, uh, compared to the story that's told in this book. <clears throat> and I will, you know, take too much time to go through the whole thing. But in short, it's the life story of a guy named Louis Zamperini, who uh, was an Italian-American guy who grew up sort of poor in Southern California, um, decided to train seriously in running and qualified for the Olympics. And so he participated in Olympics that were in uh, Nazi Germany, I think in the 30s, 36 Olympics, I believe. Um, he almost wins a medal. Um, and then he goes and fights in World War II. 
and he's a bomber pilot gets shot down in the Pacific. And he was the person who has survived longest in the open sea in a life raft. That was his claim to fame. So you have the story of him surviving in the open sea, and then he gets captured as a POW, and then he's hidden away in this camp, and nobody even knows he's alive. Um, they tell his mom officially, your son was lost over the Pacific. It's over. You know, here's the American flag. We're so sorry. Our condolences, right? Meanwhile, his mom refused to accept this. She says, I know he's alive. I can't accept this. I know my son's out there somewhere. Turns out she was right. He was in the, a hole in the ground, you know, in a Japanese island as a POW. Nobody knew that. Mom knew it somehow. I mean, it's fascinating. So then, so then, then there's the war ends. <clears throat> he comes back, but he has PTSD. He becomes an alcoholic. His marriage is falling apart. He doesn't know how to get his feet underneath him. Then he has a come to Jesus moment and has a spiritual awakening after going to a tent uh, revival service. And then in his new spiritual journey, he realizes he, he needs to forgive the guy who was torturing him in the Japanese POW camp. And so he goes on a search to find this guy and to forgive him and to build a relationship with him. So now the, the final part of the story is that. And then it fast forwards to the very end in the uh, Olympics in Nagano, Japan, I believe in 96 or something like that. He was a torchbearer. So now he was actually through his friendship with the Japanese government, people and making amends, he's now carrying a torch as an invited guest in their Olympics game, bringing it full circle from when he participated in Hitler's Olympics in the 30s. It's a, just an incredible arc of a story with so many themes about overcoming perseverance, redemption, forgiveness, tragedy, hope. I mean, it's just amazing. And, and it's so well written and it's biographical. And so I, I kind of love that. You know, it's like truth is stranger than fiction. I, I don't get too excited about fiction stories, but I get excited about the real life stories that, you know, it actually happened. You know, people actually went through this stuff, you know, so amazing book, Unbroken. Sounds like an amazing book. And it's, it's a yeah. shame that such a powerful book, I mean, as you just described it, was not a great film. That deserves to be a great film, doesn't it? Truly, truly. I, I wonder what you think. If you end up reading the book, let me know. But it was spellbinding. I couldn't put it down. Page one. I was reading it for three hours. It was one of those kind of books. Like, wow. Yeah. So, so Michael, if people want to find out more about you, maybe if they want to work with you, they want to find out more about your website, your podcast, social media, where, where would they go? Ah, uh, thank you. I think the easiest way would be my Substack address. So it is drturner, D-R-T-U-R-N-E-R, drturner.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And that is an integrated site where I have my wellness articles, I have my podcast, and also there's a link out there to my proper website where people can get in touch if they want to be a client. So drturner.substack.com. And, and obviously all those links will be in, in the show notes below as well, so you can you can check them out there. And just before we finish, Michael, do you have a, is a quote that comes to mind that really resonates with you for any reason? Thanks for asking, Tony. There is. There are, I have a rotating... I guess, mental, uh, you know, window of quotes kind of going through my mind at different times. But this one has resonated in times past and I think perhaps one of the most profound. So um, it's a derivation of a quote that goes to Rabbi Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L, -L -E who was a rabbi in Europe, I think in Spain and uh, the Middle Ages, uh, or maybe it was like maybe 14, 1500s. Um, but there are four parts of this quote that are very profound. The quote goes, if not me, who? If not now, when? <clears throat> if I am not for me, who will be? If I am for me only, 
who am I? And each part, each stanza there has a different profound impact, right? If not me, who? In other words, change begins with me, right? Be the change you want to see in the world, you know? Um, oh, I wanted to do such and such. Well, if not now, when? Get, start now, you know? Don't, don't, don't prolong. You know, be, be this change in the world and start now. And then if I am not for me, who will be? In other words, you need to become your best advocate. You need to, uh, to, to push yourself forward. You need to believe in yourself, self-confidence, that kind of thing, right? But if I am for me only, who am I, right? If, if I'm living just a self-absorbed life where it's about promoting self and my ego and becoming the biggest, grandiose version of, you know, everything self-interested, who am I? In the final analysis, I need to have enough confidence to believe in myself, but it needs to be not about myself at the end of the day. It needs to be about leaving the world a better place than you found it, et cetera. So that's, that's my power quote. It's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Wait, do you I remember so. how old you were when you first came across that? In adult life, maybe three or four years ago, you know, not a long time ago. Was it something that as soon as you saw it, it just hit you? Did it like have immediate impact or did it need to take a while to sink in what it really meant? No, it had some pretty immediate impact. I was doing some thought at the time about subconscious mind, positive attitude, you know, priming your mind for just success, you know, broadly defined, interpersonally, in service to your community, et cetera. So I was looking for Quotes. And I have a little habit. I write them up on a note card and I stick them on my bathroom mirror. I literally tape them on my bathroom mirror. And I've always got four or five at any given time. So I'm brushing my teeth, washing my face in the morning. I'm looking at these quotes, getting them in my mind. And I knew that that's important because it primes my mind to be approached my day in a certain way. And anyway, I came across it. It, it hit pretty immediately. Um, and uh, it just seemed to encompass that sense of action, that sense of drive, that sense of confidence, and that sense of service that I wanted for myself, you know. Before we finish, Michael, is there anything you'd like to leave uh, the audience with? Anything, any last sort of comments or thoughts or anything? Yes, definitely. I always like to leave on a note of inspiration, you know, positivity for people. Uh, let's just say as regards your health and wellness, you know, your show is the art of living proactively. Um, no matter where you're at with your health and wellness, if you're not quite where you want to be, you know, it's okay. Just be patient with yourself. First of all, things can turn around. I see this all the time. I mean, I've seen patients who have lost tons of weight and started running competitively, you know, and completed a half marathon, right? Or people who have climbed a mountain and done different things. So it's easy to compare ourselves to people sometimes or compare ourselves to our younger self and get down on ourselves. But as regards health and wellness, it's not really about anybody else. And it's not about your youngest or a younger version of you. It's about being the best you that you can be now, you know, and there's some acceptance that goes with that, but then there's also a healthy dose of encouragement that goes with that because you might be just surprise yourself how healthy you could be if you took some small proactive steps every day and worked that process, you know, and there's a beautiful destiny waiting for you on the other side, which is to say your optimal state of health, you know, feels good. And uh, I'm sure you can, you know, attest to that, Tony. It's, um, I, I said at the start of the, just before we started recording, my experience is often when, for whatever reason, we have to record a second time, it often proves to be better. And I, I, that's continued again, because I think this was a, a better episode than the one we would have put out 
if it hadn't been for technology going wrong. So, so thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. There's a reason for everything. So thank you for having me on, Tony. And uh, I'll look forward to staying in touch. You know, it's, I enjoyed it. Next week, episode 233 with Sheila Cowell, MD. And she's a board certified pediatrician and obesity medicine physician, as well as a certified life and weight coach. She's a mum and she has a message that all parents need to hear and believe so they can hardwire the habits for health into their kids. So we talk about things like what parents can do to help kids who struggle with their weight, why is it important to focus on health more than just on weight? Why are so many people struggling with weight and health in society nowadays? And she talks about why parents are the best people to actually help their children more so than, than doctors. So that's next week, episode 233 with Sheila Cowell. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please do share the podcast with someone who gets some value from this. Subscribe, leave a review, all those sort of things will be hugely appreciated and I hope you have a fantastic week.